Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Last week, we did an overview and an introduction to 2 Timothy. If you'll remember, Paul is in his second Roman imprisonment in a jail cell in Rome. He is already partway through his trial, having come through his first offense, and he expects to die soon. And he's writing to Timothy, calling on him to come visit him one last time. And Paul is at the end of his life. He is a seasoned older man, the end of his life, and this is in some sense, this letter, his, his last will and testament, if you will. And Paul wears his heart on his sleeve in this letter, and we, we talked about the themes of the letter, the themes of suffering that show up repeatedly, calling Timothy not to be afraid of suffering, but to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel, united with others, and in the power that God gives and the theme of the centrality and sufficiency of the Word of God for all things in ministry, to hold fast to it, to guard it, to live it. And then those finally uniting in the third theme, that Timothy would make himself ready for useful service. And so as Paul launches into the letter now, our text today is, is verses 3 through 5. Paul starts his letter with a word of encouragement, a word of thanksgiving, a word to strengthen Timothy. Let's read that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. This is a, a thanksgiving. It's not uncommon for Paul's letters to start this way, to start with a, a word of thanks. And I just think it's striking that Paul, while he has many hard, potentially, things for Timothy to hear, that he has many hard things to say, begins with a word of encouragement, especially considering Paul's circumstances. Paul is, after all, in a Roman jail cell. And as we said last week, Roman jail cells didn't, don't have gymnasiums and cable TV and ping pong. Um, Roman jail cells are much, much more restrictive, much harsher. Um, we even see indications that Paul is nervous about the coldness of winter coming on, asking Timothy to get his cloak for him that he left in Troas. And so Paul, we could expect, has, if anyone has reason to complain, if anyone has reason to grumble, if anyone has reason to say, poor me, you'd think Paul. He spent his entire life, at least his entire Christian life, pouring himself out over and over and over again for the church. Paul just loved the church. He lived for the church. He was willing to die for the church. Read, read 2 Corinthians 11, and he lists his his hardships and his sufferings, at the top of the list is his concern for the churches. And yet, after pouring himself out, spending himself for the Lord's church, at the end of his life in his imprisonment, he's deserted 
by most of his friends. He's not surrounded by a strong group of people. Oh, they're out there in the various churches. And he sent some of his faithful workers out as well. But here he is, alone, largely deserted, and abandoned in a Roman prison cell. Probably not the way he expected to end his life. And yet I'm so encouraged that Paul is talking about being thankful. And Paul is concerned about encouraging Timothy. It's striking the way Paul does this. Paul does this very frequently. This is his normal pattern. The way Paul thanks somebody, the way Paul likes to encourage somebody, is what he does is he thanks God for them in their hearing. I'll say that again. What Paul does is he thanks God for the person in their hearing. That's what he says here. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Saying, Timothy, you are a cause of thankfulness for me, and I thank God for you. I think it's a great pattern. Sometimes giving people thanks can be awkward because we don't want to sound like we're praising them. This is a great way of resolving that tension. You thank God for them. And so I I thank God for the elders of this church. I thank God for, for you as a body and your loving concern. And that's why you can give God glory and you can encourage the other person. And that's Paul's pattern for giving thanks. It's, it's a great method to do so. And so Paul is opening up this letter, not complaining, not saying, poor me, not saying, help, Timothy. Remember, you owe me. He's encouraging Timothy. He's in a jail cell and he's overflowing with thanks. He's in a jail cell and he's overflowing with, with joy and thankfulness to God. And as he starts this thanksgiving, Paul first takes a look at his own faith, his own walk of faith. And we see here that Paul's thankfulness to God, this first point, Paul's thankfulness to God. In point A, we see the sincerity of Paul's faith, the sincerity of Paul's faith. He qualifies it. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Let's focus on that word clear conscience. That's, that's a bold claim, and it's one that I hope to make when I am facing death. You know, you can study and wonder, how on earth did the Apostle Paul do this? How did he keep putting up with what people threw at him? And we can hypothesize what a remarkable person he was or what a wise person he was. But I, as I read my Bible, as I read my New Testament, I'm convinced more and more that the things that made Paul remarkable are more run-of-the-mill or mundane Christian traits. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're important. But how did Paul endure in ministry? He kept a clean conscience. That's remarkable. He kept a clean conscience. He, he encouraged Timothy in the same way in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. If you remember from a few months ago, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Okay, Paul, how do you do that? How do you wage the good warfare? 1 Timothy 1, 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This clean conscience thing is a big deal. It's a key ingredient to fighting the fight of faith, and it was a key ingredient, rejecting a clean conscience was a key ingredient to the apostasy of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, so what is one of the secrets of the Apostle Paul's staying power? He kept a clean conscience. Okay, how do you do that? Well, first, you do that by coming to Christ in faith. 
If you're here as an unbeliever today, you do not have a clean conscience. You may think you do, you don't. You, you have guilt before God. And by coming to Christ in faith, by trusting on his death in the cross, by, by looking to him as your satisfaction, you can have a clean conscience. You can have forgiveness. And that comes at the moment of salvation. But then as we go forward as Christians, we continually need forgiveness, restoration. Jesus gave us that example with the foot washings. And Peter said, if you're going to wash my feet, then give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, you don't need a bath, you just need a foot washing. 1 John 1.9 says, if, if we are confessing our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so Paul isn't saying he has a clean conscience because he's never sinned. What Paul is saying is when he sins, he confesses it. When he sins, he deals with it. When he sins, he, he turns from it and it's covered and so his conscience is clean. And that is a key ingredient to perseverance in ministry. And if you get to a point where you start to ignore your conscience, where you start to become, worse yet, comfortable with an unclean conscience, watch out. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Their conscience bothered them, and they sort of ignored it, and bothered them some more, and they ignored it. And eventually, before you knew that their faith was shipwrecked. So Paul's testifying to the sincerity of his faith. Second, we see the continuity of Paul's faith. The continuity of Paul's faith. Paul places himself in a line of faith. Now, it's possible Paul is thinking about this because this might be part of his defense. The, the early church, um, as they were being accused of creating a new religion, the defense that they made, the defense the apostle Paul makes, is that no, this Christian this Christianity that he is a part of is nothing but the continuity, is nothing but the progression and the fulfillment of Judaism. And so Paul is saying the same God he worships is the same God his fathers worshipped. You think of Abraham and Moses, same God. This is the argument that he makes in Acts 24 when he's being um, tried at a lesser court. Acts 24, 14 to 16 but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both man and God. Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. And the, the God, the Jewish people claim to worship, we worship in truth. And Paul makes that clear, that we have the line of continuity from the Father. So Paul places the sincerity of his faith, he looks at that, and he looks at his place in this continuum of faith. And then point C, we see that remembering fuels Paul's thankfulness. Remembering fuels Paul's thankfulness. Look at, look at how he says this again. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So what is the cause of Paul's giving thanks constantly? What's the cause of Paul praying thankfully night and day? The ESV says here constantly or unceasingly. 
is his remembrance, is his bringing to mind and memory of Timothy and his interaction with him. We'll see it in the next verse. And you've heard in prior sermons me emphasize the important role of memory, of bringing to mind God's goodness, of bringing to mind truth, of bringing to mind what God has done. Well, here's another important use for memory, remembering the encouragement and the fellowship we have with other believers. If your prayer life is a little dry, maybe you could do with some remembering of of the grace of God poured out to you through others. He's remembering Timothy, but he's thinking of God. He's already said that, I thank God for Timothy. So as he thinks of the joy in his fellowship with Timothy, as he thinks of the encouragement with Timothy, we know that he sees the vertical line. Every good thing that he has experienced in his friendship with Timothy is from God, is a gift of God. And as he remembers that, it causes him to well up with thanks. He's in a prison cell, and he's welling up and overflowing with thanks, night and day. This is a, this is a similar thing we see in Philippians 1.3, speaking to the church at Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So this is the first time we see that word. It shows up three times in this text, or variations of remember show up three times in this text. And what is the fuel of Paul's prayer life here? What, what gives it the zeal? What gives it the power to go night and day unceasingly in thanks in a prison cell? Remembering the grace of God in his friendship with Timothy. Second, we see Paul's longing for Timothy. So there's Paul's thankfulness to God. Second, Paul's longing for Timothy. In some senses, this is the, really the point of the letter. It's telling Timothy, please come to me before wintertime. He says here in verse 4, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. You turn over to chapter 4. Paul makes this, again, repeated request. 4.9, do your best to come to me soon. 4.21, Do your best to come before winter. Paul wants to see his friend one more time before he dies. Paul wants to be reunited with Timothy. And I just want to make a couple observations here. The first, that fellowship, Christian fellowship, produces joy and encouragement. Now that may seem obvious, but I just want to stress it. Christian fellowship produces joy and encouragement. This is all headed towards Paul's joy. And so the assumption is Paul wants to be reunited with Timothy because doing so will encourage him. Doing so will give him joy. Doing so will strengthen him. And and we can't overstress and we can't assume the importance of Christian fellowship. If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is, is imperative, it is necessary for you to have friendships with other believers, friendships that encourage your faith. This is one of the reasons why we have the church and why we gather as the church. This is one of the reasons why televised church is insufficient because we need each other and we need to be encouraged by each other and we need to encourage each other. Hebrews 3.12 tells us the guard, the cure of this dangerous slipping away is encourage each other day after day while it's still called today. And so don't, don't skip over that. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, still needs encouragement. You don't graduate to a point where you don't need other believers. You don't graduate to a point where you're strong enough that you and Jesus can walk off into the sunset alone. The Apostle Paul needs encouragement. 
The Apostle Paul needs fellowship. He longs for it. And his joy is incomplete without it. Be careful if your joy, you think, can be complete without it. So fellowship produces joy and encouragement. Point B. And again, this may seem obvious, but it's profound. Paul longs for fullness of joy. And I just want to stop there. It is okay to want to be joyful. In fact, I'll say it's better than okay. It is mandatory. God demands that we seek joy. And the challenge is where we seek it in. All of us are on a quest for joy. All of us are looking for fulfillment. All of us are looking for satisfaction. The promise, the deceitful promise of sin is that you can find it there. But Paul has no problem. He's unashamed in saying, I want joy. And you, know, you might be thinking, well, well, Jeremy, didn't you just insist that Paul says this Christian life is about suffering? Well, yes, Paul says all who desire to live a godly life will endure persecution. This is joy. This isn't the prosperity gospel of an easy life. This is joy in, through, and with suffering. This is joy in the trial. This is Paul saying my outward man is perishing, but inwardly is being renewed day by day. God wants us to pursue our joy in him and in the good gifts that he supplies us. So here, this is the way this works. Paul wants joy. It's a good thing. And Paul's pursuit of joy glorifies God because he's pursuing joy in the things that God has given him to encourage him. He gives God honor when he finds his joy in Christian fellowship. He gives God honor when, as we see later, he finds his joy in helping to win God's elect in the church. He gives God honor when he finds his joy in God. Christianity is not a call to some stoic, stiff upper lip, do your bit, work hard, and it'll all be worth it in the end. Religion. There's some truth to that picture, but it's a caricature, and we miss the point. If God's after our hearts and our affection, and Paul has no problem saying, Timothy, come, because I want joy. I want joy. I'm going to... I'm going to be joyful when I see you. Paul has no problem arguing this way elsewhere. Philippians 2.2, encouraging the Philippian church to be united and of one mind. Complete my joy. But more striking still is Hebrews 12.2. Why did Jesus go to the cross? In one sense, out of love. Yes. In another sense, obedience to the Father. Yes. The answer to Hebrews 12.2, why did Jesus go to the cross? Listen to this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. According to Hebrews 12, 2, it is perfectly biblical, perfectly true to say, why did Jesus endure the cross? Why did he go to the cross? He did it for joy. He did it for a greater joy. There was a joy that was set before him, a joy that came from obeying his father, a joy that came from being exalted and given a name above every name, a joy that came from being united with his bride, the church, redeeming his people. And that picture of joy set before Christ led him to endure the cross. So our Savior acts out of a motive for joy. Paul acts with a motive for joy. If you're a Christian, I'd encourage you, Act out of joy. Just find your joy in the things of God. That, that's the challenge. The challenge is cultivating and shepherding our hearts so it doesn't delight in evil, but delights in good. So that it doesn't crave
for evil, but it, it hungers for good. But Paul has no problem saying, I want joy. God has no problem saying that Jesus acts with a desire for joy. And all of this then, point C, is fueled, remembering fuels Paul's longing. So first, remembering fueled Paul's prayer life. Now, as he remembers Timothy's tears, it fuels his longing. And again, we see that, that place of memory. Look at verse 4 again. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now, I'm assuming the tears are the tears at their parting. We don't know for certain. We do have a, a similar passage in, in Acts when Paul was being taken to Jerusalem where he'd be arrested and he'd head off for his first Roman imprisonment. He met with the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. We read about their farewell there with these words. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him and being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that he would not see their face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So when Paul said goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, there's much tears. And even though this is not when Paul and Timothy um, said farewell for the last time, it's likely we're looking at something similar. It's possible that Paul was arrested at Troas. That would explain why he left his cloak and his books there. But we can't be certain but what is certain is this. Paul is thinking back to the time he and Timothy said goodbye. And he's thinking to Timothy's sincere love. And the way this works is this. As he remembers and thinks about the grace of God poured out in Timothy's heart, because Timothy loved him, Timothy cared about him, and Paul could see it through the tears in his eyes. It, it invites, it fans a reciprocal love in his heart. His heart then grows in love for Timothy, and he longs to see him for joy. That's the way this works. But all of that mechanism is as Paul remembers Timothy's love for him, as Paul remembers Timothy's concern for him. And then that in turn fans the affections of his heart, creating the longing to see Timothy. And again, if you find yourself uninterested, ambivalent about gathering with other believers, if you'd be just as happy showing up here five minutes after the service and zipping out three minutes before it's done, um, which I hear has been done on occasion. Um, if that's the case, I'd encourage you to, to reconsider. Your experience doesn't line up with the testimony of Scripture, and perhaps one of the things you need to do is slow down and think and remember the encouragements you've received from others to help stir your heart up to, to realize its need, its desire, so that you, like Paul, would actually be looking forward to longing to gather with other believers, longing to get together and have fellowship and not dreading it. Remembering fuels Paul's longing. Remembering fuels Paul's longing. And third, we see Paul's confidence in Timothy. Paul's confidence in Timothy. Verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And this really is the setup for the rest of the argument. As, as I was trying to divide up the text for these messages, I was tempted to, to do a bigger chunk because this first thanksgiving really becomes the foundation for what comes next. If you look at the way verse 6 begins, for this reason, because of this thanksgiving, 
I want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. But we're going to divide it here, but I want you to understand this chunk, this Thanksgiving, becomes the foundation for what comes next. It becomes the um, reason, the warrant for the imperatives that follow. And it's primarily Paul's confidence in Timothy. The rest of the letter, Paul is going to be calling Timothy to do some hard things, to endure some hard things. And so he's starting off by saying, Timothy, I'm confident that your faith is genuine. I'm confident that your faith is real. And then by God's grace, you'll be up for the task at hand. It can be very encouraging. I was talking to some brothers um, just last week about this and what an important role other people have in encouraging me and in giving me an assurance of my salvation. There's many ways the Bible gives us that we can receive assurance of our salvation, but one of them is other believers testifying to the grace of God in our life. You know, if, if I'm examining myself and the fruit in my life, I can be given to being overly critical or overly easy. Yet when someone else comes up to me and says, you know, Jeremy, I've really seen you grow in this area. I've really seen the grace of God at work in your life. That's one powerful encouragement that, wow, God is at work. I am his workmanship. He is, he is doing something with me. And so Paul here reminds Timothy of that. He, before he calls him to do hard things, before he calls him to endure difficult things, he, he says, Timothy, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, you're a believer, that God's at work in your heart, that your faith is genuine. And just as when Paul looked at his own faith, he looked at the sincerity of his faith, here we see the sincerity of Timothy's faith. Um, Timothy's faith is real, Paul says. Um, listen to what he writes to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 2, 19 to 22, Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Again, Paul seeking joy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. This is all written prior to 2 Timothy. So, so when Paul says, I'm convinced, I know your faith's genuine, it's, it's based upon the testimony of Timothy's life, his, his work and service in the gospel. It's based upon the fruit that he has borne. Notice Paul does not say, I'm convinced you're a Christian because I remembered the day you prayed the prayer. People get saved when they pray prayers. I'm not, I'm not in any way diminishing that. My point is simply, and we'll see this in the rest of the book, that the way that Christians are to gain assurance of their salvation, the way that Paul sizes up Timothy so he can say, I'm confident you know the Lord, is not, I remember when you prayed the prayer. Rather, as we'll see, it's going to be the fruit in Timothy's life. It's the fruit in Timothy's life. People absolutely get saved when they pray prayers. I have no doubt about that. But biblically, the pattern we have for sizing up, for evaluating, for being confident in the salvation of others and ourselves comes from different sources. And that's a, a big theme in this book that we will see as we go further. So the sincerity of Timothy's faith. Timothy is a genuine believer. Paul has no doubts about that. Whatever encouragements he gives, whatever corrections are coming, Paul understands this, this guy's a believer. Interestingly, now we turn to the continuity of Timothy's faith. So Paul starts by placing himself in the long line, thousands of years long, 
of Jewish prophets, starting really with Moses, the first to write scripture all the way to the present day. He places Timothy in the continuity of his faith, but here it's generational. His grandmother, his mother, and himself. But it is interesting that in both cases, we're looking at their, the way they fit in this line of faith. Paul looking at the big picture, Timothy looking at the smaller picture. The continuity of Timothy's faith. This faith that dwells in Timothy now, first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Now what's interesting, and I think very encouraging for, for those who have kids here, is Timothy grew up in an unbelieving household, or at least a half-unbelieving household. We know this about him from Acts 16.1, where he first enters the story of the Bible. In Acts 16.1, Luke writes, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. From that, we understand his father is not a believer, which would explain why young Timothy was not circumcised which Paul then later did so as not to offend the Jews. And so he grew up in a mixed household. His mother, a Jewish believer, a Messianic Jew, if you will. His father, a Roman unbeliever. And in that environment, his mother apparently, and Paul's highlighting this here, his mother's faith and her love of the scripture was enough to overcome the darkness of the father. And Timothy was one to faith. Paul was a father to Timothy, but I don't believe in the sense that he brought him to faith. It's, it sure says, seems to say in Acts 16.1 that when Paul arrived there, Timothy was already a disciple. Paul fathers him, he mentors him, but, but it sure seems as though Timothy was brought to faith by the faith of his grandmother and of his mother. And what encouraging news is that? I mean, think how much more encouraging when you've got both parents are believers. Here is, here's just a faithful grandmother and a faithful mother, in a culture that we know women had far less rights, far less freedoms than they do now, and yet Paul is linking their faith to Timothy's. Turn, turn to chapter four. We know, chapter three, I'm sorry. We know a little bit more about their faithfulness. Chapter three, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the implication clearly in childhood, and given the introduction in chapter 1, who did Timothy learn the scriptures from? His grandmother and from his mother. Isn't that remarkable? What a remarkable work they did. What a remarkable faithfulness they had. They taught Timothy the sacred writings. They didn't teach Timothy their opinions. They, they didn't teach Timothy the wisdom of the age, pop psychology. They taught Timothy the, the sacred writings, the scriptures, which made him wise, which gave him the information for salvation. These two women, in a Roman culture, 
had a remarkable effect, a mark, remarkable legacy. And the church today is forever enriched and forever blessed by the faithfulness of these two women who may have gone to their grave never knowing the effect their faithfulness would have. And again, this just encourages me as a parent because I want my children to come to faith and, and based on passages like this, and tur- turn to Deuteronomy 6, based on passages like this and other passages, I know that, that my faithfulness or lack of it can have a strong effect on how my children turn out. And so here we see that the faithfulness of these two women God used it and it overcame the, the negative influence of, of Timothy's father. And in Deuteronomy 6, parents are told this, the Shema, the, the great confession of Israel in, in, in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just stop and think about that. Is there there any way the Lord could make it more emphatic what he wants the regular content of our household discussions to be? Not just something we do for devotions in the morning. Not just something we do on the ride home from church on Sunday. Not just something we do on Wednesday nights. I, I can't imagine how the Lord could make it more emphatic that this is regular, this is constant, this is run of the mill, this isn't exceptional, this is the norm. Just Look at it again. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Okay, sitting in the house. When you walk by the way, you drive into the store. When you lie down, that's at bedtime. And when you rise, you shall bind them on your hands. Every time you see your hand, there they are. And the Jews of Jesus' day took this literally. They were writing them on their hands and foreheads. They weren't actually believing them, but they, they had nice little phylacteries on their forehead. But you're missing the point. The point is, everywhere you go, everything you touch, everything you see, whether you're standing, whether you're sitting, whether you're sleeping, whether you're waking up, or you're going to work, this is the type of stuff you're talking about. This is coloring your speech. There is no sacred, secular dichotomy. But The risen Lord is the Lord of all. And so really, Christians are discussing everything with the Lord in view. And if parents will be faithful to this, as as I imagine Lois and Eunice were, look at the fruit that can happen. Look how God can use that. It's a remarkable responsibility, and yet Paul testifies that from childhood... Apparently they did this because Timothy knew, became familiar with the sacred writings, which were able to make him wise to salvation. So it's testifying to this continuity of faith. Here's generational faithfulness, multi-generational faithfulness. Here's a godly grandmother passing on her faith to a godly mother who passes on her faith to a godly son. 
but it's centered around the word. It's centered around, as he says in chapter 3, from an early age, Timothy being well acquainted with the word. Again, verse 14 in chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. These, these were faithful women. So you go back to chapter 1, Paul's mulling all this over, he's thinking this over, he's remembering for this reason Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. That's the starting point. And your mother Eunice, and it passed on to Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Well done, Lois and Eunice. Well done. May we be as faithful. And finally, finally we see that remembering fuels Paul's confidence. You notice how the three times remember shows up in this passage. Here's the third time. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. So remembering in the first point fueled his thankfulness. In the second, it fueled his longing. And here, remembering and thinking about Timothy puts a confidence in Paul that Timothy is a true believer, that Timothy is up for the task by God's grace. He's, he's thinking about God's people. He's thinking about Timothy. He's thinking about the work he has done. He's thinking about his parents. Maybe he's thinking about when he first met him in Acts 16. I don't know. What I know is, is that Paul is in jail, and rather than thinking about his, his poor situation, rather than thinking, poor me, rather than thinking, why has everyone left me, and why is this where I end up in life, he's thinking about grace. He's thinking about Timothy. He's thinking about his faith and the joy that he had in him and how he misses him. And he's thinking about these things and it wells up within him thankfulness and prayer and it wells up within him a desire to see Timothy to gather with Christians and, and here it wells up a confidence. Paul, in some senses, is going to be passing the baton here pretty soon. In fact, just keep reading it in chapter one. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. For I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So to summarize, Paul says, Timothy, because you've got genuine faith, because you've got spiritual gifts, I want you to fan them into flame. I want you to join me in suffering, and I want you to join me in not being ashamed of the gospel, and I want you to join me in proclaiming this message. And then Paul goes on to say, I've done it, and the reason I've done it is because of the grace of God at work in me. And I've done it because I'm trusting God to guard me. I've entrusted myself to him. He'll guard it till the day. 
Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So what Paul says is this, I was faithful to guard what was given to me and I know the Lord is gonna be faithful to, to guard what I've entrusted to him. The question remains, Timothy, will you be faithful with what's been entrusted to you? And Paul's already told us at the beginning, yes, he believes Timothy will be faithful. That's where this is headed. He's calling on Timothy to take up the mantle, to continue the ministry. Paul has been faithful with what he's been entrusted. The Lord is certainly faithful with what Paul has entrusted to him, namely Paul. And what he's going to call Timothy to is, will you guard what's been entrusted to you? And all of this fueled by confidence, all of this fueled by remembering and thinking what we think about, where we let our minds wander, what we choose to feed our thoughts, bears fruit in our lives. And here, Paul in jail at the end of his life isn't daydreaming about going to the beach. He's thinking about ministry. He's, he's still at work. More work needs to be done. And he's trying to stir up Timothy for that work. So here we have Paul's apostolic prayer life on display, his, his thanks. And if you look back at the title of this, I, I tried to make this um, sort of go both ways. Because remembering then is the fuel in order to thankfully encourage others. You want to become a more thankful person? You want to become an encouraging person? You want to become a more praying person? You want to become a person who wants to gather with other believers? One of the things you can do is think about God's grace expressed in other believers. You start becoming thankful for people. You start to want to gather with other people. You start to want to talk to the Lord and pray for other people. And your confidence in the church and your confidence in other people will grow as well as you remember the grace of God operating in their lives. Let's pray that the Lord will give us the grace to be a thankful people, a, a people longing to gather together, and a people confident in the work of God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for each other. Lord, we thank you that we are not isolated, that we're not in prison cells, separated from other believers. We have each other here, Lord. And yet I know that, that it can be hard for us to open up to each other. It can be hard for us to share with each other. And so, Lord, with these riches of grace that we have in the vessels that you use in this room, I just pray that you would knit us together more firmly, that we would grow to depend upon and to love and to care for and to look forward to gathering with each other. And we would think of each other and pray for each other and thank you for each other so that we would be confident in the work of grace in each other, Lord. I am so thankful for this body. I'm so thankful for your church here at Martinsdale. Thank you for the encouragement they give to me, for the strength that you supply through them to me. Lord, and I, I am so glad to be gathered together with them, and I am so confident that you will finish the good work you have begun. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace.